Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Athens, Georgia, has long been known as a music town, but it's also a prolific community of photographers. Reckonings and Reconstructions is an exhibition on view at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens, that explores what defines the South through several decades of Southern photography. Later this hour, curator Jeffrey Richmond Mole talks about Athens as a center for alternative culture and as a microcosm for the changing American South that the rest of the exhibition presents to its viewers. Plus, speaking of comedy, our series of Atlanta-area comedians in their own words, today featuring Zane Sharif. First, migration has been a part of the human experience throughout history. A new exhibition at Hammond's House Museum in Hope for a Better Future explores contemporary Haitian transmigration from a female perspective. The show is on view through December 18th. Joining me now via Zoom are the artist Tracy Morell and Wallis Etienne, vice president of the Atlanta-based nonprofit International Women of Hope. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Lois. This is such a treat. Thank you, Lois. Tracy, this show represents a new role for you with Hammond's House, having been a curator there for five years. What's it like for you to present your own artwork? Oh, my gosh, it's so thrilling in many ways. I was able as a curator to present, uh, curate different exhibitions from sculpture exhibitions to paintings and photography work. And all of that helped me in creating this exhibition. And the fact that I was invited to present, create work for the exhibition by the museum was even more meaningful. I know all the 
you know, all the nooks and crannies. So I knew <laughs> what, what works here and what works there. So it really helped me to fully express my vision. It's such a beautiful space, all the spaces within the Hammond's house. I agree. Would you discuss the use of transmigration versus migration within the context of this show? Absolutely. Initially, it was migration, and I was using that terminology when I first was working on the exhibition. And as I started to read uh, and do more research and collect books, I realized that transmigration was a more fitting term because the people that I was intersecting with were going back and forth to Haiti to support it and to offer not only financial support, but also offer any other support that was needed. So they're actually, they've migrated to another country, which is their home, but they're going back and forth on a regular basis. So that makes them trans migrants because they are continuously making that, that return trip. Uh, now, I read that you are of Haitian ancestry and you recently made a trip to Haiti. How does that background inform this exhibition? Well, about my Haitian ancestry, that was something that was new. Really? Yes. Morel sounds like <laughs> the French name. Well, I had my mom's DNA tested and then my dad's DNA tested. And then and we found out where we were from, which part of Africa and on my dad's side, it's Europe and on different places. And I discovered that National Geographic Genome Project had a program where they will test your DNA and give you the migratory path of your DNA. Oh, my. And I thought, wow, that is so cool. And it fit into the theme of my work of, of exploring migration. And so I ordered a kit, sent in my samples, and it came back. And it terminated in two places. And it terminated in Bermuda. And I thought physically, I could see that. And then it terminated in Haiti with 50%, 56% of my DNA was similar to Haitian DNA in their gene pool that they have tested. And I started asking my family members, I was like, we have Haitian ancestry? And nobody knew anything. They're like, what are you talking about? And I would show them the test results and they're like, this is news to us. And so it was, it was something that I wanted to explore and find out more about it because my point of reference with Haiti is in, with the Haitians that I know here, they're living in the United States and also with what the United States media puts out there, which is not positive. And I realized that I wanted to experience it for myself and maybe see if there's a way that I could do some, I don't know, find some Haitian relatives. And I was introduced to the International Women of Hope and they accepted me and their executive invited me on her trip last year. Oh, wow. I'm curious, when you mentioned the media 
and what's out there. What misconceptions about Haiti are dispelled when people visit the island? I would say the first thing that will hit you immediately is that when you visit Haiti, that it is a beautiful island, well, half of an island. And I was in North Haiti in Cape Haitian. And you're traveling and you're looking out of the plane window and you're just in the Caribbean. Yay. And then when you get out and you're visiting, it's absolutely gorgeous. You do see areas that need economic development and repair, but that's with any place. You can go anywhere in the United States and see that. So I had the opportunity to get a full picture of what Haiti looks like and what Haiti feels like, which I don't see in the media at all. Mm. Walise, how did you and Tracy connect? Well, Tracy and I, we connected through Rose Bruce Vixamar, who is the founder of International Women of Hope. And Rose Bruce was connected through the Chamber of Commerce. That's how we connected. Tracy shared her project goals with us. We had a couple of meetings. And the next thing we knew, we were in Haiti together. (laughs) (laughs) And I read that your parents migrated from Haiti and you grew up in Miami. What brought you to Atlanta? Yeah, so my my parents grew up, they came to um, the United States as teenagers and they met in Miami. Um, We actually lived in West Palm Beach, Florida, where I graduated from West Palm Beach. And I I went on to college at Mount Ida in uh, Massachusetts and also in New York for my final parts of my education. So while I was in New York after 9-11, things were pretty scary. I'm in New York and I had a cousin that said, hey, I think it'll be good if you move to Atlanta and be closer to home. So I'm very independent as a young lady. And I said, okay, you know what? I'll give Atlanta a try. And it was the best recommendation since. And I've been here for about for about uh, 15 years now. Would you tell us something about the work you do helping Haitian women? And what's important for us to understand about their experience? Definitely. As the vice president of International Women of Hope. Um, Hope stands for, it's an acronym. It stands for healing, opportunity, purpose, and education. In my position as the vice president, I came on board and I saw the wonderful work that the International Women of Hope was doing. I was amazed and I saw how they were reaching back out to not only Haitian women in Haiti, but also the women here in Atlanta that they've been servicing. And as a young Haitian American woman coming into my adulthood, wanting to connect and stay connected to my culture, I thought this was a great place for me to be and intertwine the skills that I had in my business, my business experience, and along with the nonprofit world. And just to expand on what was, you know, what we can do more to help women, especially the women in Haiti. We have so many wonderful programs that we're doing to help the economical base and, you know, to 
help strengthen women so that they can be self-sustaining and not in a position where they're having to depend so much. Um, the diaspora, the Haitian diaspora, we do, we can, we, we help a lot of our family and friends back home. And when you can help a woman stand on her own, it's one of the greatest joys and gift that you can give. I wondered if you've worked with women who were migrating to escape domestic violence. Yes, we have. We have worked with women who've ex- escaped domestic violence. You know, it's it's a very difficult thing getting calls in the middle of the night, trying to help women, place women, and helping them heal. You know, we offer a lot of education and awareness for women in the metro area where we invite a therapist to come and speak. And we also are connected with the church and and just provide a, a spiritual aspect as well as to part of their healing. And we do, we, we work with the women and we've had some very interesting cases and the work is really never done. And we do need a lot of help in that area to support our women. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with artist Tracy Morell and the Vice President of International Women of Hope, Wallace Etienne. Tracy, in this exhibition, you focus on themes of identity, migration, and displacement. How are those ideas expressed in the works on view at Hammond's house? Well, the works on view in the Hammond's house is my first exhibition that includes installations. And I wanted to have everyone who comes in to the exhibition, when they walk into Hammond's house, the first thing they do is they feel an island feel. So I was able to take two of my encaustic rice paper paintings and have them copied onto these floor to ceiling poly silk panels. And I created all of these of the sun and the island and in, in resin and made it a transformative space. So when you walk in, you're there. You, you feel like you are in a space of an island of tropical. Then when you move into gallery B, I have the portraits of the women that, from the International Women of Hope, that were my guides and are my sisters, and of Miss V, who was one of the women that we interviewed, and she was able to, you know, through a translator, let me know about the services that she's receiving and what her life is like being in Haiti. Then I move on to, in the hallway, giving a view of, you know, I have a a sculpture of Africa and then a painting of a slave ship. And then I have another painting of a raft on, on the water and the sun to show you know, this is the beginning of of where Haitians came from. This is how they got to this part of the world. And this is what they're experiencing now. 
And so each, each part of the, the exhibit has a different feel. When you walk into the next gallery, there are my sketches uh, while I was there that, that shows everything from the, the women that I met, or actually the women that I viewed. I don't think I met all of them. I just would do a quick sketch and I would turn it into a pen and ink drawing. Um, then there's a video room that shows the video while I was there um, that we shot, me and my partner who is a filmmaker. Then walking up the stairs, I have installations that I created out of resin and ink and all of these wonderful paper sigils that are part of these mobiles with a hibiscus flower at the end. And then the exhibition ends with a reading room. And this I find I'm getting the most positive feedback from because all of the books that I read over the last two or three years that each one gave me new information. I presented those books in a nice seating area and the New York Times put out an article in June and it talks about the debt that Haiti had to pay to France for their freedom and what it has cost Haiti because it didn't just end with one payment, it, 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 it continued. And that is why Haiti is in the financial position. One of the reasons why Haiti's in its, the financial position that it's in. So I wanted to give a full story of what I've experienced so far and show not only the, the people who from Haiti that are showing me Haitian life, but are engaging me in conversations and they're going back and forth. They got a trip planned and I'm trying to see if I can go on the next one. You know, it's a work in progress, but it also it's a love story of me finding out my connection to Haiti and presenting it on as many levels as possible from ocean sounds and gallery A to video to a little bit of everything. Hmm. I, I had fun. <laughs> Is the rice paper a nod to the plantations? Actually, I've been working with rice paper for a while. So the materials that I use were not specific for this particular exhibition. I actually, what was in my studio, because a lot of this work was, I was playing around with it, was during the beginning of the pandemic. So I was just in the studio by myself with my dog and we were, and well, I was just experimenting, trying to get what was inside in initially what I was reading, how to express that in art form. And then after I went to Haiti, how to express it more fuller in a more fuller way. And right, encaustic rice paper is just one of the, the, the ways that I express color and shape. Ah, I know you like to work with silhouettes. <laughs> yes. Why are silhouettes a great entry point for discussions about serious topics? For me, silhouettes are a great entryway because it eliminates the features. So when you are looking, also my silhouettes is also 
with the resin. So you're able to see your reflection in the silhouettes. And what I'm hoping is that will bring the viewer closer to the painting itself and it will give them a connection. Another way that silhouettes offer a way to talk about different subjects is that less information opens up a way for you to discuss multiple topics. So I can ask somebody, look at this and tell me what you see. And it's not the same thing because I'm only giving you so much information and you're filling in the information that comes from your experience. And then we're able to have a dialogue. And I love the way silhouettes do that. Yes. This show, You State, is about transmigration through a female lens. What distinguishes the migratory female perspective from that of a male perspective? Well, in Haiti, as in many countries, the female is the one that is taking care of not only the home, but the children, and that is the focus. And so when I'm exploring different topics, I'm interested in the home. I'm interested in how the day-to-day, -day, how are my subjects able to make it from one day to the other day with the limited resources that they have. I feel that the female lens is specifically looking, identifying with those day-to-day -day things in a way that maybe the male lens would look at a broader, have a broader viewpoint. And so I, I tried to get as close inside in a way so that I can see what's going on in, in the day-to-day. Well, he's... I understand there is a piece of artwork in Tracy's exhibition that she was inspired by you to create and did so in your honor. What can you tell us about it? For a whole year, I've been anticipating Tracy's exhibition. Since we were in Haiti together, I saw how she was absorbing the culture the people. And at the opening day at the Hammond's house, unknowing to me, I was floored, honored, and proud to see a reflection of translated work in Tracy's art language. This collection is a true Caribbean aesthetic, I can say, and a deep dive into women and the culture that it represents. Very honored. Wallace Etienne, Vice President of the nonprofit International Women of Hope, and artist Tracy Morrell in Hope for a Better Future, is on view at Hammond's House Museum through December 18th. More information is on our website wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll head to Athens and hear about the newest exhibition from the Georgia Museum of Art at UGA, Amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Reckonings and Reconstructions. An exhibition on view at UGA's Georgia Museum of Art invites viewers to consider what defines the South through several decades of Southern photography. The show presents the first display of the entire Do Good Fund collection, spanning generations of photography from the 1950s to the present. Joining me now via Zoom is Georgia Museum of Art curator Jeffrey Richmond Mall. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks so much. Please tell us about the Do Good Fund. How did it originate? What does it do? Well, the Do Good Fund was founded in 2012 by a man named Alan Rothschild. It was founded in Columbus with this intention to create a museum quality photography collection that could be shared with communities throughout the South with this idea that there are communities all throughout the region that simply don't have access to that level of, of photography. And so it's, it's a lending collection. That's how it was founded. That's long been its mission. And the collection has, over the past 10 years, amassed a, a group of over 800 photographs by, as you said, photographers working from the 1950s to the present day. So we partnered up with the Do Good Fund for this exhibition to celebrate its 10th anniversary and think about how it has been pursuing this mission of, of seeing photography as having this kind of moral imperative, the notion that the camera and that a photographer can do good for the South and for the world through the work. And then also think about, you know, the future of the, the collection, especially in recent years, being a collection that has prioritized acquiring work by young photographers who are emerging into this field, diversifying its collection to include more women artists and artists of color. So it's a really exciting moment in, in the life of this collection and this organization. Mm. The exhibition of photos features a diverse array of artists. Beyond the shared geographical location, what unites the works as distinctly Southern? That's a great question. I think one of the biggest challenges of this exhibition was defining 
what Southern is, where the South exists. Uh, is it an imagined place? Is it an actual geography? Uh, how has South been defined in the past and now in the present? I think what unites the works as particularly Southern, aside from the fact that they were taken within the kind of what's conventionally defined as the American South, is uh, they actually convey something about how the South is continuing to change, how it's not something stable, but as the, the do good funds own catch phrase, you know, the, their guiding statement, it's a, a visual narrative of the ever-changing American South. So these are photographs that tell stories about the region, about this place, but show this place as, as something that is going through continued transformation. And I think especially with choosing those two words in the title, reckonings and reconstructions, there is always the sense of looking back and looking ahead. And this is something that I'm not from the South. And so I'm also very mindful of, you know, you have this person who moved from the Northeast to Georgia several years ago and is tasked with defining who the South is and what it includes. And, and so I'm very careful about that. But I continually have this sense that a, a picture that is Southern is attentive to the past, to history, both you know, the good of the past and the, the trauma and the violence of the past, but also looking ahead and thinking in light of that past, what is, what is our Southern future? Mm. So yeah, I think that's what, what brings these photographers together. Very thoughtful answer, Jeffrey. The collection contains photos by artists such as Sheila Prebright. We've spoken with her about her photos of Black Lives Matter activism, Gordon Parks, Builder Levy, and Michael Stipe of the band R.E.M., who is serious about his fine art photography. Would you tell us about the photographers whose work was sought out for the Do Good Funds collection? How did those curators or that curator think about which artists to include and why? In putting together a collection of the South and about the South, I think the Do Good Fund wanted to assemble images that are familiar to viewers, images by artists that we might know and immediately think of when we say the word Southern photography. You mentioned some of them. I think there are, there are others like Alex Harris, Mark Steinmetz, many more. But then I think what the Do Good Fund did so well, and, and this is something that I tried to pick up on in my own efforts to create this survey of the collection, was to balance the expected with the unexpected. Who is a photographer that you think of and what is a picture that shows what we know about the South and who is making work that maybe troubles and upsets our standard associations and really in a way our, our 
the stereotypes that exist about who the South is and what the South looks like. So this is something that I think anyone has to be careful of is to, to not perpetuate the kind of stereotypes that I think photography has long created or at least helped reinforce about the region and to really expand what we know and, and what we might see in this region. And so you, you have a number of, I, I, and I think you see this the most in a lot of the emerging photographers, these younger photographers in the collection. And coincidentally for us being located in Athens, Georgia, a number of these artists have ties to Athens. People like Georgia Rhodes and Rosie Brock, and then others working further afield, Christine Potter, Matt Ike in Virginia, uh, you know, the, uh, these, these photographers are bringing these fresh perspectives that take what we think we know about the South and then turn it on its head. Yeah, I read you have an entire gallery in this show dedicated to photography of or relating to Athens, Georgia in particular. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the University of Georgia has historically had a, a strong photography program. And so we have people who studied at the university here or people who just, you know, happened to be in Athens and and made pictures that really say something about what's unique about this place and, and Athens as a kind of microcosm for that changing South that I've been talking about. The exhibition explores six core themes, land, labor, law and protest, food, ritual and kinship. Law and protest go together in the list as a single category. Which photos speak to the South's ongoing struggle between efforts to control and efforts to resist? Well, you mentioned Sheila Bright, whose 1960 Now series is all about this notion that the past is not fully behind us and the, the, the problems that we face and the resistance that's required to build a new region and build a new community is not over. And her work appears next to some of the famous photographs from Life magazine by Gordon Parks, who you already mentioned. But I, I think there are other works like a photographer named Paul Kuleski, who's from Bainbridge, Georgia, who always talked about how he loved making pictures in the courthouse in Bainbridge because he felt like that was the place where politics became personal where the law manifested itself in the everyday lives of everyday people. Kuleski also photographed the Confederate monument in the center of Bainbridge and Willis Park. And that photograph, or one of many photographs of Willis Park, because his pictures show that park as a space for Veterans Day ceremonies and prom pictures and other kind of elements of civic and social life, this photograph of Willis Park and the, the Confederate monument appears next to a photograph by Andrea Morales of the removal of a Confederate monument in Memphis, Tennessee, several years ago. So the, those two, I think, especially show how, how the law and these kind of 
legal and social systems have imprinted themselves in the very fabric of the region in public sites and public spaces, community spaces. And then moments where, you know, photography is not just documenting, but participating in the efforts to kind of reconcile the past with the present and to repair, to, you know, to reconstruct, again, to use the words of the, the exhibition. Hmm. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is curator Jeffrey Richmond Mole. On the theme of land, there are a few photos reflecting that theme, some serenely, some starkly. And I saw one that struck me as even a little funny. You mentioned Georgia Rhodes. Her 2014 photo called Road Trip, which shows an open car window with thick, lush roadside foliage spilling aggressively into the car. Can you talk more about the photos addressing the land theme? Yeah, I think that Georgia Rhodes photograph is a great example of how these pictures capture all the, these kinds of contradictions of our relationship to the land in the South. Uh, a car, which is the thing that's supposed to take us through and across the landscape in this kind of sealed off air conditioned space uh, is now, you know, bursting with goldenrod as it mm. crashes through the window. So these, uh, these photographs in, in this section, I think what makes them Southern is not just that they're pictures of the Southern landscape, but they show how, what kinds of relationships exist between people and the environment, between culture and nature. They show, as in the case of photographs by Jeff Rich of, of, of the Blue Ridge paper mill or Stacey Kranitz, who makes a photograph of a, of a playground that you don't realize until you read the title is sitting directly beside a toxic landfill in this town in Louisiana full of Superfund sites and petroleum plants. So you have these images that expose the devastation of the Southern landscape and its impact upon communities. But then you also have the ones that show something more intimate about how how people relate to the land with, you know, there's a Dave Anderson photograph called Breeze where this young girl is holding a, a chicken in her arms and her hair is sweeping back in the wind and her fingers are spread as she, she holds the chicken. And, and you start, as you look closely, you start to see that as her hair flips and her fingers spread, they're mirroring the spread feathers of the bird. And it makes that relationship between a person and this animal that she cares for that much more kind of precious and, and intimate. Or Alex Harris, uh, his photograph of a beekeeper down on his knees listening to the hive. Where are those more intimate moments in a place where we sort of think, well, people relate to animals in the South as you know, hunters <laughs> with guns, which, you know, is another conversation and equally complex. But, you know, what, what are those, as I said before, those photographs that kind of provide an unexpected view into a relationship with the land and with animals? Hmm. Um, ritual and kinship, 
Why is ritual so important to Southern identity and community? And and are there ways you think depicted here that reveal how it goes beyond religion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I picked the word ritual specifically rather than spirituality or religion or something referencing a kind of system of beliefs that is that is religious because i think ritual is the is a way of you know not just in the south but anywhere rituals are the ways that we kind of tell stories about ourselves to ourselves it's the the opportunity to both verbally and mentally but also physically place yourself within a community as an individual so there are the photographs of churches down rural paths in you know southern forests by William Christenberry, but then there are also <laughs> churches like those, like the cathedral in Ave Maria, Florida, which was a planned Catholic community and a kind of utopian experiment by the founder of Domino's Pizza, which is another place where literally ritual structures the urban fabric of a place uh, but then there are the rituals that are social that are that are civic that you know in the past in negative ways have helped perpetuate I- ideas of who counts as southern and who doesn't who counts as part of the the dominant culture and who's marginalized Jeffrey, the exhibition's title, Reckonings and Reconstructions, suggests a look at the past while envisioning possible future. What do you see as the collective hope for the future South expressed through these works or through some of these works? Yeah, that's the big question. <laughs> one, that <I'm, laughs> one that I stumble through answering and maybe is a bigger responsibility than just mine. But I think these are pictures about, as I said before, and with, you know, with, uh, with these photographs in New Orleans and many others are an effort at recovery and repair of a kind of restoration and that's why I ended the exhibition with the section on kinship, because all these other sections were about, you know, in the South, how do we relate to the land? How do we relate to labor? What is our relationship to the law and what role has photography played in that, which we've talked about? And kinship was an effort to say, you know, how do these photographs show how we relate to one another? You know, really, it's one of these phrases that struck me when I moved from the Northeast to Georgia coming from a place where everybody asks you when you, you know, you're making small talk and you're meeting someone for the first time, I, where I'm from, it's, oh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? <laughs> it's all about work. And I found that in the South, it's, there's much more of an interest about, the, the question isn't really asked anymore, but I think the traditional question is, who's your kin? Who are your people? And finding a relationship with someone that you've just met through mutual relationship. So I, I think ending with that section, and, but also throughout the show, it's, it's an attempt to, to share pictures that are about connection and, and, and reconnection. And that 
if there's any kind of lofty goal that I think these should have and that I, I can suggest, it's rebuilt relationships and a restored dignity in the way that we see and treat one another. Curator Jeffrey Richmond Mall, Reckonings and Reconstructions, is on view at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens through January 8th. More information is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series Speaking of Comedy, today featuring Zane Sharif, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name is Zane Sharif, and I'm an Atlanta-based comedian. I actually got into comedy in high school. Uh, my high school had this program where improv teachers from Dad's Garage would come over uh, once a week, and they would teach improv to a bunch of high school kids. Um, and I did that for like four years. Uh, and then eventually I was like, I love comedy and I love performing, but how do I do it without these other people? <laughs> and I guess I fell in love with stand-up. That's what stand-up is. It's if you love comedy, but you don't play well with others, you go to stand-up. I, I think stand-up is uh, pretty close to a, a true meritocracy in the sense that like, if you're good, you'll get opportunities things will go well. And so the big challenge is just getting good. Um, and getting good is painful. It requires a lot of bombing. Bombing, for those of you who don't know, means doing poorly. We call it bombing. And we call doing well murdering or killing. Very, It's a very violent language choice. But um, that's what stand-up is, is just bombing a bunch of times and trying to not be bad. And if you do that long enough, you could be good. And that's the real challenge. That's the eternal pursuit. Well, I obviously look up to a lot of different comedians and they've inspired me quite a bit, but from like a, I don't know, like a philosophical perspective, as lame as that sounds, there's this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, uh, to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. And I think uh, the more I do stand up, the more I realize that those little moments um, in life that you think belong only to you or are unique to you are actually the most relatable. And so the deeper you can go into yourself, uh, the, the more commonalities you can draw with your fellow human. And I think that's what makes something very funny. And that's what I try to have inspire me. And uh, especially in the pandemic, I, I started to value my parents a lot more. Like, I look up to them now, you know? Like, my parents, they, they came to this country younger than me. They had two degrees each. They worked 18-hour shifts in fast food restaurants, so they made it in America. And then they had me. And last week, somebody told me to mail a check, and I was like, that's too much effort, you know? <laughs> I'll Venmo you if I have time. <laughs> 
in this pandemic, I have no practical skills. And the worst part is, I was a straight A student, great SAT score. I found out like this year, that doesn't help in real life. <laughs> I've never needed the quadratic formula, you know? This is how little practical skill I have. If there was a plane crash and 10 of us survived, the leader would stand up, he'd be like, all right, if we're gonna make it through this, we all gotta stick together. I need to know what skills you has. You go, one guy's like me, I got a great sense of direction. I can navigate, all right? And you, ooh, I climb trees and locate food, all right? And you, and I'm just in the back like, um. If you show me like a triangle, <laughs> You give me uh, two of the angles. <laughs> I got you on the third. They'd be like, all right, we're gonna eat you first. How about that? The joke that I've sent over is about how I have no practical skills compared to my parents who came to this country and actually had to do stuff. <laughs> and as I'm getting older, I'm. Uh, realizing how truly <laughs> pampered I was or how spoiled I was and the fact that if you're good at school it really does not matter you know in the face of a deadly disease or a pandemic or anything truly life-threatening um, the fact that I took uh, calculus 2 in high school it literally does not matter at all um, <laughs> and I guess that's something that I, I came to terms with <laughs> in, in COVID. <laughs> Well, I love Atlanta because um, it's a supportive community. There's so many uh, young up-and-coming comics who have such unique voices. And, you know, coming from the South, their comedic styles are inspired by so many different things. They can't be kind of put into a box. Um, and that's something that I love about Atlanta and Atlanta comedy. And also, there's a lot of shows, there's a lot of chances to get better. And I really value that. My favorite venues are probably, I, I really love the Laughing Skull uh, in Midtown. Uh, I really love the Punchline, that's in Buckhead. Uh, those are kind of two of our big clubs. And then we've got some really great uh, independent producers that put on uh, multiple shows every week. Fifth Place Comedy, Hissy Fit Comedy, One Up Comedy. And they just do these kind of indie shows all around the city. And, and those are great for, for building new material and seeing awesome comics. So I do involve the crowd in my sets, but not really. <laughs> Involving the crowd in your sets is really, it's crowd work. It's called crowd work. If you know about comedy and you're listening to this, you must be so annoyed that I'm explaining everything to you. But crowd work is when you ask somebody, are they dating? How long have they been together? What job do you have? How old are you, sir? Or whatever. And uh, I've never really enjoyed that. <laughs> or been particularly good at it. But what I do do is I'll talk to the audience for a second just to start my own bit. Like if I have a bit about shampoo, I'll be like, ma'am, what shampoo do you use? And then she'll be like, I use this shampoo. And I'll be like, great, let me, now here's my joke about it. <laughs> great, stop talking. Well, I'll do it now. <laughs> I've been putting a lot of uh, content online on YouTube, uh, TikTok, and Instagram. So you can see um, a bunch of bits. Um, that's, that's what we call jokes, bits. Um, but you can see a lot of that uh, online, so follow me at Zane Shreve Comedy, and uh, my website is ZaneShreveComedy.com. You can see kind of uh, shows and, and upcoming stuff. Thank you. Comedian Zane Sharif and our series Speaking of Comedy. More information about Sharif is on our website, wabe.org. 
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the sibling co-owners of Fidel Bistro stop by with stories from their Ethiopian and Eritrean restaurant. Plus, Kennesaw State University wildlife enthusiast Christian Cave joins us to detail his recent encounter with a rare Georgia pine snake. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about the new Hammond's House exhibition, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.